Imagine living your life after 50 and feeling energized and excited about your future. Welcome to the Women in the Middle podcast, the podcast for women who are ready to figure out what they want and create the life they deserve. Here's your host and master certified life coach, Susie Rosenstein. Hey there, welcome back to the podcast, Women in the Middle. I'm your host, Susie Rosenstein, your master certified coach and midlife mentor. And I'm so glad to be here with you again for this week's episode, which is all about the decision to create your life and tell your story with Michelle Dawson Haber. I am very excited to introduce you to our guest today. Michelle Dawson Haber works full time as a labor relations professional, but didn't let that stop her from pursuing her dream to become a writer and getting published for the first time at age 55. Michelle is also someone I've known for about 20 years or so because our kids went to the same schools and were buddies growing up. Actually, that is part of what makes this interview so interesting. Even though we've known each other for a long time and we've been on vacation together a few times too, there was still more about Michelle's story that I didn't know and that came out only recently. And I love that part of the story. And for you, a woman in the middle who's likely stuck or thinking about a career change of some sort, I really think you're going to love what Michelle shares about the way she's been preparing for her next chapter. In her case, it's her dream to become a writer and her amazing perspective about not giving up. But there's so much more to her story, and it relates to an earlier episode in the Women in the Middle podcast. How is that for intrigue? So please enjoy this interview. Hi, Michelle. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Women in the Middle podcast. Hey, Susie. Thanks for inviting me. I was really looking forward to this call. I think I asked you a year or more ago if you wanted to be on the podcast. And here you are. So one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on, not only is your story interesting, it's evolving and it took a lot of courage. So you are smack dab in the middle of thinking about your future and a transition as a writer going forward. And you were like all in on your dream. So let's talk about it. I want to know first, like when when did you really start to think, ah, something's got to change? I know I need to make a bit of a change. When was that going on for you? Was it your 40s? And what did it look like? So my 40s. I've had a great job for the last 23 years. I'm coming up on 23 years. It's a great job. It's challenging. It's interesting. I feel like I'm making a difference in people's lives. And I wasn't really looking for a change yet. I was aware of wanting to do something other than work. I didn't want to be one of those people who goes to a job, raises the kids, and does nothing else. I wanted more out of life. And I had lots of interests, writing, pottery, cycling. And I have the really good fortune to have the kind of job that gives me flexibility to pursue those interests. And one of my very favorite benefits in my job is something called the prepaid leave. Um, So the prepaid leave was what allowed me, and I decided really early on that I was going to use the prepaid leave to sort of branch out and live life and get away from my job and make the years, the decades of my working life a little bit more bearable by having something to look forward to. 
So for those who might not know, prepaid leave, and I'm not sure if it exists elsewhere, but in Ontario, teachers and other public servants have it. It's basically, um, it's essentially a sabbatical that the employee pays for herself. My leave is called a four over five. So for four years, my employer pays me 80% of my salary and deposits 20% per year in a trust account. By the fifth year, I have 80% saved in my trust account. So in the fifth year, I take that 80% out of my trust account and I do whatever the hell I want for the fifth year. And my employer has to keep my job for me. And I'm living on the same money as I lived on for the previous four years. That just I'm sitting here with the biggest grin on my face. I know one other person who was able to do this throughout her very long public service career, and she's retired now. And like you, she was there for well over 20 years. And she her big thing was taking these like extended travel trips. And she is, I think, one of the most traveled persons that I know. And uh, it's so exciting. So I've known you for a while over 20 years as our <laughs> kids went to school together and everything. And, and I've known that you've been doing this. And I've, I was always so jealous because it really is an opportunity to try new things and to be creative. So what happened next? So I was 39 when I decided I was going to do this. And so I took my first year off when I was 44. And then no one else in my workplace has done this. I've done it three times. I did it at age 44. I did it at age 51, and I'm about to start my third one in July. And uh, it's great. It's just really a good way to space out your working career. Yeah, it gives you something to look forward to. It gives you variety. Yeah. And it gives you a chance to dip your toe into something. So I guess right now you're about, what, four or five months out from that. That's right. Yeah. That next sabbatical. And, and- And you do take a hit financially, but for me, it's worth it. And that very first year off that I did, the first week of my year off, I went on a writing retreat. Now, back then, I was doing fiction. Um, I was never unhappy in my job, but I always wanted more. That is so great to know. And that probably is one of the strongest things that led you to be so open to live at an 80% salary level, which is really something you committed to for the long haul. Right. Yeah. And not everyone can do it, right? Everyone's life circumstances are different. And I, I'm married with another salary in the family. So all of those things make it easier for me that might not be easier for others. And I'm, I'm always cognizant of, of how lucky I am, really. Yeah, you created it. But I'm sure it wasn't so easy all of the time. And was that the first time that you ever did a writer's retreat? Yes, that was the first time. And how, and- how long were you thinking that you know, it's time to really take action? Oh, that's a really good question. I guess I've been thinking about doing writing for a long time. And I never, I never really thought I had the space in my life. It's not that, you know, I always wanted to pursue my interests, but I somehow thought, and I was right, that writing would take a lot out of me. And in my 40s, I wanted to pay attention to the kids. And that didn't feel like a sacrifice on my part. It was just an acknowledgement that there are only so many hours in the day and you can't get that time back. And I wanted to launch them as well as I could. And so so I concentrated on that. But then, you know, when I was ready, I thought, let me see where this writing thing goes, because people always complimented me on my writing. And I thought, okay, 
and I had plenty of ideas for fiction stories. And that writer's retreat was really, was really neat. And it gave me a lot of confidence because people loved what I wrote. But then I did, I was about to say I didn't do anything with it. I did one thing. I submitted stories to the Toronto Star Short Story Contest, and I didn't win. And so I thought, well, I guess I'm not as good a writer as I thought I was. And I just dropped it. Hmm. Um, I didn't try hard. I didn't drop it as a dream or as an idea, but I just didn't try very hard at that time. It makes sense. You tried something. And the Toronto mm-hmm. Star is a, it's one of our you know, large newspapers here. So it's not like you started in, in like a poetry contest in grade three. That's right. <laughs> Isn't that when our kids had the poetry contest? It was so <laughs> yeah. cute. Yeah. But anyway, that's, that's cool. The, the, you got some compliments. You got some feedback on it. You always knew you had it in you at some degree, an interest anyway. And, yeah. and that's a common thread. You know, when we look at what makes us happy, where we get pleasure, what brings us joy, it's very common to find the roots in childhood. Mm-hmm. That's true. For example, I did pottery in high school and I loved it. And every 10 years or so, I take a pottery class, you know, and try to get that spark back. And it was only when I was 50, someone gave me uh, a birthday gift as of pottery classes that I thought, okay, I'm ready and I'm ready to commit to this. And I, and I haven't stopped for the last six years. I've been doing pottery. Well, look what's on my desk. Oh, I'm look holding at I know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm holding up a little pottery bowl. It's the first little pottery bowl I ever made. And it was in Michelle's studio in her basement. <laughs> And here it is on my desk. And I didn't even put that together until just now. So we're on Zoom. So she was able to see it. So cute. Well, how did you know something was off? Like, what did it feel like for you to want more, to push yourself in that direction? I know you mentioned in our pre-interview that it wasn't quite a funk because you didn't feel unhappy, but there was something pushing you. Yeah, I just, I wanted, as I said, I wanted to just do more than the go to work, raise the kids thing. You know, I wanted to, I didn't uh, want to just wait for life to happen to me. I wanted to Mm. go grab it. And I thought, well, I have nothing to lose. So, you know, that very first paid leave off, I went to a writer's retreat and I must've known that I wanted to give that a good, the good college try as they say. (laughs) I love that. And so when you kind of committed to writing over the long haul, like you started to fall in love with it, the writing retreat was positive, but you realized the time to get super involved wasn't then because the age of the kids. How did you know that that really was your dream? How did you know when to dive in? I think, um, you know, I always, a lot of people think I'll write a book one day and I'm, I'm no different. I thought I'll write a book one day. And my, the early rejection sort of uh, tampered that down a bit, um, but I never let it go. And I was waiting for the time and the inspiration. And then in 2018, something really huge happened. Um, and I should give you the backstory. I, um, I'm a step adoptee. I was raised by a, my biological mother and a stepfather who adopted me. My father died by suicide when I was three months old. 
And so I never knew him. And I never really considered that very, a very significant part of my identity until 2018. In 2018, my sister had a bunch of old-fashioned audio reels. You can see them in the shelf behind me, actually. <laughs> you know, they come, they come in round metal tin cans. And you need special equipment now. It's called special equipment um, <laughs> to play them. And so my, my sister had these reels. And finally, in 2018, she found someone who could help her digitize them. So we got on Skype together and she played them for me. And for the first time in my life, in, in memory is probably more accurate, I heard my father's voice. And it just, the floor just dropped out from under me. I couldn't believe that I had never spent very much time thinking about this. I had never heard his voice. I never even thought about what his voice might have sounded like. And all of a sudden, a switch flipped and I thought, I need to know more. And so I said to my sister, I'm going to write a book about this. And that's literally how it happened. I, I knew I was going to go on a quest and I knew I was going to write about it. And for me, it was a story that was more compelling than anything I could have dreamed up in the fiction realm. And uh, so that's how it happened. And those earlier stories that were fiction, it was easy for me to let them go. I, I would get one rejection. I go, oh, I guess it wasn't very good. But no rejection is going to stop me from pursuing this story because it's my story. So that's where it started. And it dovetailed nicely with my dream of one day being a published author and telling my story. And frankly, I mean, I was motivated by, by three things. One is I, want, I had this dream of being a published author one day. And I was going on this quest, and I might as well write about it if I'm going on a quest. I mean, it's eminently writable, right? But also, I truly believe that my story will help others. And a lot of my life choices, in my career even, my life choices have been motivated by a desire, wanting to do good in life and to help others. And so I had the motivation, I had the drive, and uh, I haven't looked back. Now, I just want to point out a couple of things, because that's a lot, and it is such an amazing story. What a gift that those reels even existed. Yes. What a gift. But it's not everybody who has some powerful experience in their lives, and then all of a sudden they say, I'm going to write a book about this. <laughs> <laughs> True. So it seems like the universe was colliding. And as a listener of the podcast, um, some listeners may recall that your story sounds kind of familiar to mine in terms of the way we grew up, which is uncanny. And over the years of our friendship, more and more similarities of our childhood and being a step adoptee came out and having mm -hmm. a parent who died by suicide. It all came out. So in my case, I'm also a step adoptee. My mother died, my father remarried, and my stepmother adopted me. And then years later, my father died by suicide. So we both have this weird, very unusual story. You know, one of the reasons I love doing the Women in the Middle podcast is because I take great pride in 
inviting amazing guests, really interesting guests to come on. And sometimes amazingness obviously is defined by me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think my guests are amazing and you're in that circle now. And so is Professor Michael Grand, who I invited on way back in episode 82 to do an episode called Midlife Reflections on Adoption and Assisted Reproduction, Why Thinking About Adoption Can Be Really Important in Midlife. And Michael and I knew each other for even longer, way longer than we knew each other, because he was one of my professors in university, where we discovered that we were both step adoptees. And I didn't even know step adoption was a thing. And so that was really interesting. And I mentioned it to you. So do you remember how that happened? Oh, my gosh, Susie, I will never forget how that happened. We made plans to get together. We went to Bagel Plus. I even and I have a you have to know I have a terrible memory, but I know I can picture in my mind which table we were sitting at. And um, I started to tell you this story. It was early 2019. And I was telling you the story of this obsessive quest I was on, trying to uncover everything I could about my father. And I didn't understand what was going on with me. I didn't understand why I was so obsessed. And you said to me, I think you should listen to my podcast number 82. And I thought, well, okay. I don't think I'd ever listened to your podcast. Maybe the first one, just to support you. Can you believe she's admitting this (laughs) on my podcast right now? (laughs) No, I don't expect my friends to listen to all the episodes. That's for sure. (laughs) All that changed, all that changed. But as a favor to you, I went home (laughs) (laughs) and I listened to episode 82. I was down in my basement and I was exercising. I write about this, actually, this very thing. And, And he came on and the first thing he said was, he talked about step adoption. I, like you, I had never known that I had a label. I didn't understand. I didn't know I was a step adoptee. Like, who cares? My father adopted me. Who cares? It was just a matter of convenience, right? Um, so he put a label to what I was, which, you know, just like having a, a weird physical ailment. Once you have a diagnosis, it calms you down, right? So that was super helpful. And then he talked about, um, things that adoptees long for. And he answered a bunch of questions that I didn't even know I had, like, what is my origin story? What is written in chapter one of my life? Did I matter to my biological father? I had never thought about those things. But once he said them, he gave voice to my truth. And I literally burst into tears, Susie, because I just didn't know what was going on with me. And he told me, and thanks to you, he told me. And so (laughs) I didn't know the first chapter of my life. I didn't know how it shaped my identity. And I didn't know if I mattered. That episode, Susie, it was transformational. It gave shape to my narrative, not only the one that was inside me, but the one that I wanted to put down on paper. And so you have been a key contributor to my journey. And I can't thank you enough. I'm actually cheering up right Me now. Too. That was not planned. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to say that. Oh, my God, Michelle, I could tell, you know, it felt so important that our worlds were colliding at that exact moment 
that you were confused. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to some degree, I've been confused, too. And which is, you know, one of the reasons I thought it was so important to have him on the podcast. So, of course, I'll put the link to that episode in the show notes. But, you know. We're all looking for meaning and to know that I have such an urge and a compulsion to make this crazy podcast. And I was just beside myself that I gave you something that helped you find what you were looking for and helped you, like you said, it helped give shape to the narrative and to see what you've been able to do now as a woman in the middle who has a a solid dream and solid skills and like you're really moving forward. So this is a reminder to everybody to do what you love. You just Mm -hmm. never know who you're going to affect and what goodness is going to come as a result. So So as you as you started to pull it together and, you know, you have a sister, too, who I mean, I know, you know, you have a sister. (laughs) (laughs) Your sister, too, I'm sure was incredibly affected by your quest. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my quest started out with the original idea was to heal her because being five years older than me, she went through a lot more angst and was much more troubled about the loss of her biological father than I was. And so I thought if I can find out more about him, I can help her heal. And I wasn't thinking one iota about myself. In fact, the working title of my memoir was Not My Story. Um, Wow. Because I didn't think it was my story. But then after hearing the Michael Grand episode, and I started to think about, hold on, what does this mean for me and my identity? It switched, you know, it became a story I was writing about myself as well and about my first chapter of life. That is incredible. I didn't know the name of your first, like your working draft. That's that's really something that shows how disconnected you were with this being a relevant part of a part of your life. Correct. Yep. Wow. Okay. So the earth started to move. And then how did you start to move things forward? How did you actually do it? Because you do have a full-time job. Uh-huh. With some juicy sabbatical time. So what happened next? (laughs) Okay. So, I mean, near the beginning, you know, I proclaimed that I wanted to write a memoir, but I had no clue how to do it. (laughs) Um, But in the beginning, I was just sort of reading through letters and researching. And then in the fall of 2018, I saw a an advertisement for a woman who is running a memoir course. And I called her up and I told her my story. And I said, does this fit within the parameters of what you're doing? And she listened to me and she said, you're not ready yet. It's too fresh. You need to sit with this for a bit. And she was right. I spent the first year just sort of going down rabbit holes, traveling, interviewing people, um, reading letters, translating letters. I didn't write a word. Um, But as that year drew to a close, I started to get really stressed out about not writing a word. (laughs) And uh, and so I kept thinking about writing, but not doing it. And one thing I I recognize about myself is that I need sometimes external motivators. And so I saw another advertisement. This was a year later. 
for another memoir course. And I thought, I think I'm ready. And I signed up for it. It was 10 weeks. And every week we were meant to submit a piece of writing. And it was exactly the right thing I needed to jumpstart my writing. By the end, I think I had 30,000 words or something. And I kept going. And another great thing about my job is it is flexible. They trust me to do my work. And so I can set my hours. So I would work in the morning and do the late shift at work. And, um, you know, I wasn't keen, keen, keen for the full 14 months. It took me 14 months to write that shitty first draft. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's called the vomit draft. You know, it's just (laughs) getting it out, right? So important. Yeah. Yeah. And so I scheduled my work day to start late and I got the first draft done. And then it was like, it was such an achievement to get that first draft done. And many people who say they're going to write, they don't even get that far because it's hard work. It really is. And many people spend more than 14 months on their first draft. But then I stalled because revision is hard. You know, when you go and you buy a book from a bookstore, you're not reading that first draft you're reading maybe the 14th draft, if that writer is lucky. Um, So writing is all about revision, and it's not easy, I can tell you. So the thrill of finishing the first draft was over, and all of a sudden I found myself having trouble getting motivated. So again, I needed an external motivator to keep me going. So I thought to myself, what can I find that will kick me in the butt and get me going again? Now, we were by this time fully into the pandemic and writing groups were popping up all over Zoom. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so there's something called co-writing. So what co-writing is, is you get together, you gather a group of people, it can be five, it can be 50, 50 is a little bit unwieldy, but people who all want to write, but they want accountability. And so they sign up, let's say for an hour to a Zoom session and everyone goes around and they say what they're going to achieve in that hour. And then they write silently with their mics off and then they come back and they have to report back. Did they do the writing (laughs) or did they scroll through Facebook for an hour? Right. And so it really sort of lights a fire under you and it makes you concentrate and work. And so I thought this is perfect for me. And I went looking for a writing group, but they were all in the afternoon and evenings. And I thought, no, I need to write in the morning. That's when I'm most productive. And there were no morning groups. So I started one. (laughs) <laughs> I, I started my, I advertised on a few Facebook groups that I belong to. And um, it was a morning Facebook group that met 7 a.m. three times a week. And it hardly mattered who showed up, although I've made some lovely friends through it. But what mattered was that I had to be there because I was the one running the group. And I think I've only missed three of them in the last year and a half. That and is so, something. My goodness. It got my chair, my butt in the chair, which is yeah. what you need to write. And so that's been really great. I love it. I love that you knew what the problem was going to be and you figured out exactly you needed a creative solution, but you figured out how to overcome that obstacle. Yeah. And your persistence is a theme here, my friend. So when, what would you say, where are you now with the project and what are some of the uh, big lessons that you've learned from your commitment, and your effort? Hmm. Well, uh, surprise, surprise, I'm still in revision. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm on draft 2.5. And the drafts have been going slowly. So I set up another kick in the butt for myself. 
<laughs> what I did was um, there's something called a developmental edit. So once you've gotten your draft in as good a shape as you can, you send it out if you can afford to, to a developmental editor that you pay a lot of money to, to rip it to shreds and then give it back to you so you can do more revisions. And this is part of the process. So I thought, let me hire an editor who's waiting for my draft. So I've just this past week actually hired an editor who I'm really happy with. And I told her, I will have the best thing I can deliver to you. You will get it by the end of the summer. So that allows me to work on it up until July. And then July, August, I'm off work. I will have full-time work on it in July and August. And I got a goal and I'll be delivering it to her, I hope, by the end of August. So you really gave yourself a six, seven month period there yeah. to, to work on it that included some time off from That's your right. job. Yeah. And so how do you feel about that deadline? Nervous, nervous, mm-hmm. because every day that passes that I don't uh, do work on it uh, makes me really stressed out. And mm-hmm. so, but every day is a new day. So I think tomorrow I'll do better <laughs> and I'll get up earlier and I'll have less sleep. But, you know, there's nothing like a deadline to get you. <laughs> get you working. It's so good. And one of the other things that stands out is, you know, just how much you immersed yourself in the writing world, even though you're working full time. And even though I'm sure at the beginning, you didn't really feel like a writer just yet. Yes. And I can tell you that has been so valuable to me and I've never had it before. And it was actually the teacher of my memoir class that that first one I took who was encouraging. And she said, you know, there's this memoir Facebook group that's really good. And she invited me. And it was just, it was so wonderful. It's got thousands of members, I think. And, but I learned so much from those women. And, you know, they, they talk about their trials and tribulations, how many rejections they're getting. And trust me, writing is all about getting used to the rejections. And, um, you know, reading their essays and learning about where to pitch, you know, which literary magazines to pitch to. Um, I learned that the fastest way to learn a new thing is to soak up all I can from the experiences of others. You know, why recreate the wheel? There are so many resources out there. And if there is one good thing we can say about Facebook, it's the groups. For sure. Yeah. I have a pottery group. I have like 17 writing groups. I mean, they're fabulous, right? And so um, I joined Facebook groups, I attend webinars, I, I've been to a digital conference and an in-person conference, uh, I'm reading craft-related articles. And so what I learned now, I know that back before when I was submitting to the Toronto Star, I was giving up far too easy. Writing is all about getting used to rejection. And the most important lesson that I learned is that if I want to be a writer, if I get a rejection, it doesn't mean that I suck. I don't <laughs> suck. It just means that I need to revise and try again. And every draft that I write is better than the last. And my Facebook groups are filled with published authors who will tell you about the hundreds of rejections they got. That is such an important lesson. And, you know, I think so many of us quit too soon in so many things, whether it's trying to get an exercise routine going, trying to lose 10 pounds, starting any new routine. 
and developing a new skill. I mean, really, you're a beginner at this level, right? But as a beginner, I have to say there's something about your attitude and your mindset that is notable. And I know I've talked to you about this before, but your ability not to quit and deal with rejection intensely and set the bar so high. So I know some listeners may recall that I got very excited about a New York Times article recently that mentioned the podcast. And that New York Times essay was in Modern Love, and it was written by our special guest today, Michelle Dawson Haber. The freaking New York Times, Modern Love, you, a a new-ish writer, got something in there. And I know it wasn't easy. You had to really push and you had to really dream large. What was that experience like? Oh, gosh, that's such a long answer. (laughs) I'll try to make it quick. You know, full confession, I didn't even know what the modern love column was before I started writing. And all of my writing groups were talking about it. They, uh, it wasn't even a liter. It's not even a literary magazine. It's the New York times. Now earlier I had sort of, I'd sort of ignored it because, you know, the title told me, well, it must be about romantic love. I'm not writing about romantic love, but then my very first submission of writing an, of creative nonfiction was in 2019. And that very first submission was a version of the essay that would two years later be in Modern Love. And that tells you how long I've been working on this. I am so glad you shared that, Michelle, because like this is it. You're percolating. You're percolating all the time. You're reworking. You're you're really working on this story. And it, it doesn't always just happen overnight. And I think most of the time is it it never happens overnight. That's so true. And I think I was so in most of my life, I've been so impatient, you know, if something hasn't worked, then I would give up. But I think there's the wisdom that comes with this age is that you can't become proficient with something um, unless you work at it. And that first essay, you know, I submitted to some to an, an, an editor and she was the first person. Actually, I submitted it to a magazine that rejected it. And then a year later, I submitted it and then I reworked it, reworked it. And then a year later, I submitted it to an editor who I was sort of trying out. And she said, you know, this could be a modern love piece. And that was the first time I started to think about whether or not it could be a modern love piece. And then once she said that, I was all in, of course, right? And so I submitted it. I worked on it and I worked on it and I submitted it. And two months later, they rejected it. And... I went back to that editor and I said, they, they rejected it. And I'm so sad. She said, oh, I'm so sorry. And I said, do you think I can submit again? And she said, no, you don't do that. No. And I said, and I said, thank you very much. And then I said to myself, I'm submitting again <laughs> because I don't take no for an answer, Susie. <laughs> but I didn't, of course, I didn't turn around and resubmit. Um, I worked on it some more and I showed it to more people and I worked on it some more and I've even showed it to more editors. And about four months later, I showed it to the last person who saw it was an editor at a magazine who said, you know what, this is this is kind of unbalanced. It's too long. You need to sort of re- rebalance it a bit. That was amazing advice. I did that and I resubmitted it. And two and a half months later, 
I remember exactly again where I was. <laughs> I was in my home office and it was September 3rd and it was around 6 p.m. Actually, it was 6.02 p.m., <laughs> Susie. <laughs> and I saw the email come in and I thought, oh, here's the rejection. But my heart was beating a little bit fast because I thought, I don't want to have the editor's name on a rejection, would I? And I opened it up and he said, nice essay, very moving. Can we talk next week? And I flipped out. I spent the next 30 minutes gasping, hollering, pacing. (laughs) My family didn't know (laughs) what to do with me. Because, you know, Susie, this is this is like the modern, the holy grail of memoir writers. They get, I don't know, I've heard 5,000 to 9,000 submissions a year, and they publish 52. Wow. There are are so many established writers in my group that are trying for modern love, and they are better writers than me. Um, Some of them have better stories than I do, but, and I just feel so unbelievably lucky and blessed and uh you know like the upstart beginner but you know I'll well, take it <laughs> yeah but you're not just the upstart beginner because as you can see from your story uh that piece was a long time in the making and you worked on it and worked on it and worked on it and yeah. uh and you did set the bar high and it's so interesting when you think about fear I have noticed over the years, especially since I discovered coaching, <laughs> that I, I am more fearful than I ever thought. I never thought of myself that way. See, wow. you're making a face too. You're surprised. I can't believe it. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm very fearful. So even your goal setting, I would never <laughs> have set that goal for myself because of fear. And I just really want to recognize that and give you a little tap on the shoulder about that because- it is something that you've learned to manage rejection and fear and being a beginner, because look what is opening for you as a result of your persistence and your, the way the story is so compelling. And it just is, it's so important to get it out there. And what I have learned from the podcast is that this work that we're doing on the podcast as a writer, sharing stories, it's so important. There's no question you're going to help somebody. There's no, I know that one of the main things that people get, that the listeners get out of uh, the podcast is you're reminded that you're not alone. That's right. And I got so many emails like that. You can't imagine how many emails I got like that. Exactly. I mean, because look, we knew each other for decades and we still didn't even know all of these little elements of how similar our story was. And we've been on vacation together. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) I just didn't know. So it's just so important to communicate and to share when you feel comfortable uh, and the way your story has has really um, allowed you to to tell it and to share it and to really discover yourself in a whole new way. I think it's such a beautiful story, Michelle. If you could give one piece of advice to somebody else our age who is thinking, you know what? I think I want to write, but it's too scary. <laughs> what would you say? I would say there, and this really goes back to your, your issue of fear. In most cases, yeah, it depends what you're afraid of. But in this case, there's no downside to failing. I mean, at least not how I approached it. I wasn't going to give up my great job to be a writer. 
but I was going to make sure I carved out the time that I needed to move towards that goal. And, you know, if I fail, I fail, you know, um, if you want to be a writer, it's kind of cliche, but they say, just sit down and write. (laughs) You just have to write. And if, and you're most likely to be successful. And this goes back to why I didn't pursue the fiction. You're most likely to be successful if you have a story that just won't leave you alone, Mm. whether it's fiction or nonfiction. The writers who describe, who make it describe what they do as something they can't help but do. And so many times I said to myself, why am I doing this? This is hell. (laughs) And I don't understand why I'm so obsessed. But that obsession keeps the fire burning. And you need that fire because writing is hard. Knowing what you're in for, knowing what you want and not giving up, those are the keys to success. And I would ask myself, frequently I ask myself, what if this book goes nowhere? If I knew that now, would I still keep going? And the answer is always yes. It is. I would still keep going because I want to tell my story, at least to myself. I want to prove to myself that I have the tenacity to stick it out and cross the finish line. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Uh, I'll find something else. I'm not going to be someone who sits on the couch and doom scrolls and waits for life to happen to me or for my kids to get married and have kids, which, by the way, is not welcome pressure. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to find stuff to do because not having goals and not finding things, learning new things and finding things that excite me, that just feels like waiting for waiting to die. And I'm not going to do that. Uh, I can't even say that any better. (laughs) You have to create your life Mm -hmm. and waiting around is just a waste of time. You really do have to create the fun, create the passion, create the interest create the uh, opposite of stagnation, you know, for sure. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Very, very exciting. I'm so excited for you. And how can people get on your mailing list to stay in touch with your work and watch your progress? Oh, thank you for asking, Susie, because mailing lists are so important to writers. Most people don't realize that. But in this digital age, agents and publishers want to know you have a mailing list. So if the listeners wanted to be on my mailing list, I would be incredibly grateful. Uh, In any event, it's on my website, www.michelledhaber.com. My name is spelled with one L, but even if you spell it wrong, you'll still get to michelledhaber.com. And I would love for you to say hi and thank you so much. Amazing. And on Michelle's website, you'll also see a couple of podcast interviews that you will enjoy. Uh, What were they again? Oh, uh, I was on the CBC Tapestry program and I was on This American Life. And um, they can also go to my about page where they're going to see a picture of Susie and Michael Grand. Oh, I forgot about that. (laughs) (laughs) Very exciting. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story. It's very encouraging and realistic in terms of the work it takes to hold yourself accountable, to, you know, create your dreams, really. Your story is incredibly compelling. And uh, it's just, I'm so grateful for technology and that you were able to find those, uh, what do you call those, those tapes? The reels. The, the reels, reels. You said yeah. that they didn't deteriorate, yes. that you found them and that you were able to listen to them. And what a beautiful gift. 
And I believe, isn't there a clip of some of the exact audio in one yes. of those interviews? On, yeah. on both of those podcasts, you can hear my father singing and talking. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Susie. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Wow, what a story. I love how Michelle talked about the motivation that comes with genuine excitement and passion for what you're doing. But she didn't understand all of what was going on with her. First, with the writing, she started by writing fiction, then with her story. But at the beginning, she didn't even connect to the part of the story about her personal identity that became the most important part of her story. In both cases, she took action anyway, even when she didn't have a perfect guaranteed plan all tied up with a nice little bow. (laughs) And I say that with love and compassion for you, because I know how this gets in the way. We don't have the perfect plan. Everything's not guaranteed. What if I fail? What if I don't know all the steps? That is what happens. And I think if you remember a lot of the interviews I've done, that's the story. People have to take action before they have the perfect plan, before they have a guarantee. So like I said, she took action in both cases, even when she didn't have this guarantee. She was on a quest. And I'd love for you to think about what your quest looks like. A quest is often thought about as some kind of journey to find important answers or treasures or something like that. I'm thinking about Survivor (laughs) and the treasure maps. Um, But anyway, think back to how Michelle described her emotional attachment to the quest. She couldn't not do it. It reminds me of how many think of pursuing what they're passionate about but also how frustrating it is when you aren't clear about it or that you don't allow yourself to be happy and pursue it. This, my friend, can lead to regrets. Now, I'm in the business of talking about the importance of regret-proofing around here, so let's get busy with this. Ask yourself, what do you really want to do that you can't imagine not doing? I know something popped into your head and it's highly likely you squished it down. So I'm going to ask the question one more time And I'd like you to just be present enough to not squish it down, not attack the thought with self-judgment. Ask yourself, what do you really want to do that you can't imagine not doing? Now, if you haven't taken the first step yet, why not? If you're waiting for something to happen or for a perfect plan to emerge, I would like you to, to really think about not doing that. I would like to encourage you to stop waiting. Stop wasting valuable time. Take the first imperfect step. It's a start. And a start is what's required, not perfection. It's time to create your life, not continue to wait for it to happen. Okay, that's it for this episode. As you know, my focus as a midlife coach is to help you become the queen of your brain domain. What that means is learning how to get better at catching yourself in the act of thinking forward and wasting less time spinning and feeling stuck about what you want and how to get there. Catch yourself in the act of thinking. Correct the thought squishers. This is what regret-proofing your life is all about. Now, if you want to go faster, the bottom line is that change is easier and faster with coaching and support. And I can help. You really have to join us in the Women in the Middle Academy. It's my six-month coaching program to teach you how to get the clarity and excitement in your life again that you've been looking for. 
Don't waste another second feeling stuck. It is so overrated. Book your momentum call and we will take it from there. Head over to www.womeninthemiddleacademy.com. For show notes and links, go to www.susierosenstein.com and click on the podcast tab to find the information about this episode. Let's do this, ladies. It's time for you to put yourself first, one thought at a time. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.